listening to which could shape up to be a very interesting episode of the Cowboy Talk podcast. As always, I'm your host, Justin Sharp, joined by co-host Chad Waldron. How you doing? Good to be here again, Justin. And today's special guest, professor at the Horticulture Science Department of the University of Florida, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Yeah, easy for you to say. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much for the invitation. <laughs> yeah. So right now, uh, our school is still closed, like many of them, because we're going through a little bit of a COVID-19 issue, but uh, we are supposed to be back in school next week, right, Mr. Waldron? That The word that I heard today is we will be back in class on Monday. Awesome. All right. So let's get straight into our interview with Dr. Kevin Fulta. So if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, Dr. Fulta, that would be great. Well, that's great. I've, I've been a a university professor at the University of Florida for about 18 years. And I came here because I was excited to use the toolbox that I had on actual agricultural problems. So I'm a molecular biologist by training and did some work in genomics. Um, I'm a DNA guy. I'm a nuts and bolts uh, scientist. But there are really cool applications in things like horticultural crops, like strawberries. And the industry here in Florida said, we see this being a really important technology, so let's hire somebody to do it. And they brought me here and said, um, you're working on strawberries? And I said, I've never even seen a strawberry tree. And and uh, from there, I had a very steep learning uh, curve. A strawberry but, uh, tree? <laughs> I, I was starting at like minus 10. You know, I mean, I, sure. But, um, but the beauty of this was is that, uh, you know, I had good people who helped me out and who really held my hand through the first couple of years, including some students who had strawberry backgrounds. So I learned fast, and uh, we made some progress and did some really cool work really quick. And, um, you know, the, the new research we do is all about identifying small molecules that break biology. And I'm happy to talk about that more as we go forward if you're interested. Okay, so how long have you been working in that area then? Well, in, in, uh, in genetics and molecular biology, I go all the way back to my first lab experience probably in 1986, 1987. And I started um, washing dishes in a laboratory in DeKalb, Illinois, and uh, really fell in love with the lab environment and the opportunities to engage discovery. And after I didn't break dishes too, uh, too much, they threw me some experiments and uh, it became infectious. I was up every night in the lab, um, not every night, but Wednesday nights, I stayed overnight every Wednesday and did work all night. Um, it was a really great environment and a really great time. I'll always remember really fondly. So now you've taken all that and you've started the Talking Biotech podcast. You want to explain what that is a little bit? Well, the Talking Biotech podcast came about because I have a good background in communications. That actually, I got at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb. Uh, and uh, Talking Biotech was the product of many people twisting my arm saying, you know how to talk, you're scientists, you know how to make things understandable. Why don't you do a podcast? And for years, I said, I can't do it. I don't have time. Um, what are people going to say when I tell them I can't review the grants, but I can talk into a microphone every week? And uh, eventually, uh, Joe Rogan convinced me to do it. He said, "You got to do right? it." Got... No, no, I was a guest <laughs> like, on. I was guest like the Joe Rogan yeah, experience. The... Joe Rogan, yeah, the Joe Rogan. Oh, uh, you're was ten a times cooler now. I got to admit. <laughs> <laughs> I was, um, I was a uh, guest. I think episode six fifty five, 
and we had a great time. And he said, you got to do a podcast. And I said, well, okay. So, so I, I did it. And here we are, uh, five, five and a half years later, 1.4 million downloads and 260 some episodes for, for a weekly science podcast. So that's pretty good. So, uh, what kind of, so do you talk about, I mean, I've just started listening the last couple of weeks. So do you talk about just specifically science or do you get into kind of the agricultural education side of it too? A little bit of all the above. We do, um, how technology affects science and medicine. So we talk about the new breakthroughs in medicine. We talk about the new breakthroughs in agriculture. What are some of the new tools that can help our farmers here? as well as uh, developing world farmers have better crops and better resistance to insects and disease. Um, but we also do a lot on just crop domestication. You know, what, where did crops come from? You know, what were they like in the wild? So we cover a broad swatch of stuff, including communication. Now, how can we be more effective in reaching out to non-scientists and folks not in agriculture and be more effective in our engagement? That's a big part of what I do, too. Do, do you ever have Florida State guys get on and troll your podcast? <laughs> you know, um, I, I wish. No, I, I, I'm not. Uh, I, the thing about Florida State is that they've got some outstanding plant scientists there. And I don't get to hang with them nearly enough. And, and I don't know if it's because I'm from smelly University of Florida or if it's <laughs> something right. else. But uh, it's uh, I'm excited to be in a state where we have so many outstanding schools. And I think it's a, in, in, in beautiful weather year round. So no complaints. Right. Yeah, probably the probably the big con or the big uh, rivalry, I guess, would just be between the football teams with Miami <laughs> and you, uh, Florida and Florida State. And UCF is the other one. They're, they're oh, yeah. You got a lot University of them in that state. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of really good football in the state of Florida. And unfortunately, I don't consume any of it. <laughs> <laughs> so one of yeah. the things that actually got my attention in your podcast was the ep- was episode 242 titled The Klamath Basin Water Crisis, which is actually about two hours south of us and then from there down. Um, so in that episode, you talked a little about how farmers are getting – not necessarily well in that case they're getting pretty hurt but you talked about how farmers are getting hurt by the endangered species act and things like that and um the taking out of dams so do you want to elaborate on that a little bit and what you talked about in that episode well this episode was a really important one because it talks about these balances that we have to achieve between protecting our natural resources and protecting the way of lives for farmers who are producers in those areas and the klamath basin uh, this is, starts up at a lake that has some endangered species of suckers, so some endangered fish that, um, that are protected. And because of that, the amount of water that has been allowed to be released into the river system is being uh, constricted to the point where farmers are not necessarily ensured they'll get what they need to take care of their crops from beginning to end. And these are farmers who were granted land after World War II, coming back from, uh, from, from war, that they were uh, young men who were granted the space to start their farms and, and homesteads and start their families. And here we are a few generations later on that same space where, you know, where these same farms on very productive agricultural land is finding itself at a battle with natural resources. Over you know, water. The, the very fact that you know about Klamath Falls 
out from Oregon and you're all the way in Florida is kind of alarming that this yeah. issue is is such a such a problem and such a national it is. It's a. It's an issue on the national level now. Well, I made the point when we had we had our state senator Dennis Linthicum on last week, and we were talking about this quite a bit. And I made the point that if this does go through, and I mean, if farmers do get like permanently affected in the area by um, this thing, then I mean, it could go national. That precedent could set everywhere. Well, yeah. and this is a very important point because I think that it's a microcosm of something that's setting up to occur on a much bigger scale nationwide. You know, water is a valuable resource, and there's not enough of it. And look what's happening in California, you know, with uh, the Central Valley and its incredible thirst for water. Um, there, we have put agriculture in deserts because water was abundant. And now as, uh, as we protect endangered species, as more water is diverted to uh, urban areas, as we failed to take on these issues with production of desalinization plants like you know, Israel is a model for how you can have agriculture in a desert. Um, we needed to do that and we didn't. So I think this is a, it's a, it's a looming crisis, but I think there are looming solutions if we are excited to take them on. So you've mentioned DeKalb several times. And when I was in college, we did a lot of research with, uh, with corn and even alfalfa seeds. And is that what you're talking about when you say DeKalb, you came from DeKalb, Illinois? Yeah, DeKalb, Illinois. Yeah, it was um, the home of DeKalb Genetics at one time. Okay. Um, it, it still has something there with DeKalb Genetics. But yeah, that's the place that had the flying corn on all the sure. rows as you drive through the Midwest. Okay. So what is your opinion on the use of GMOs in agriculture and the food industry abroad? Because, I mean, you've got a pretty extensive history in that in the mainstream media and in general. Well, I look at genetic engineering as one more tool that we can use to improve plants. I'm very excited about how we're able to breed and genetically improve plants just with traditional breeding. It's fantastic that you can uh, make take something that's a wild species and through human manipulation of its genetics, just by plant sex, make in, you know huge strides and improvements. But then um, when you get to some bottlenecks, you can't do any more with standard genetic improvement and breeding. And so using tools like genetic engineering, and I always avoid saying GMOs because it's a, it's a really tough term. It's, Breeding yeah. is genetic modification. So I always say genetic engineering because it is engineering. We're using science and math to make decisions that can help people. Well, that was a big so point you made last year in class, Mr. Waldron, is it's not just like going in with CRISPR and doing things. It can, it's selective breeding too. That's right. Yep. It's a really important point. And, the, and the, the beauty of this is that we hit some bottlenecks. Like, you know, the one of the greatest breakthroughs was the addition of BT. And here you have this protein that is, comes from bacteria. It's a naturally occurring protein that, that farmers sprinkled on plants for years to avoid certain kinds of caterpillars and uh, lepidopteran pests, um, that you can install the gene for that protein that's naturally found in bacteria and now turn the plant into a factory of a protein that protects it from the insect. And now you don't have to spray, spray um, broad spectrum insecticides that maybe would kill every insect in the field. You only target the ones that target the plant. So this is a, and plus you don't have to spend the fuel to, to apply it. You don't have to have the cost of purchasing insecticides. You don't have the hazards, which some of these can have human impacts and environmental impacts. So being able to have the plant defend itself 
is a huge step forward. And that's a great example of biotechnology and how we can use genetic engineering to have better improved plant products. So where do you think a lot of, oh, go for it, Mr. Waldron, sorry. Well, yeah, I was, and maybe, maybe you're going to get to this question, but I guess when it comes right down to it, in your opinion, can we feed the world without genetically engineered crops? Well, the problem with, with feeding the world is that the world is a complex place. And many people in the world today, uh, they don't want to eat corn and soybeans. That's not their native foods. It's not what they've grown up with, what they're socially acceptable. I think that we have to approach the question of feeding the world by first uh, doing some other things. I think that we will feed the world when we have um, almost universal education, especially for women. And in many cultures where women still don't have the ability to make decisions about their own fates and their own ability to bear children, uh, once people, once they have that and they can go to school, populations come down a bit and our intensive need to produce more goes down. Um, making sure people are fed, educated, that they have medical choices. This is the way that we're going to limit the need to have to produce more, and people will be able to produce more locally. Now, genetic engineering is something that can be used to rapidly improve their local favorite crops. Adding vitamin A to the Matoke banana, which is consumed throughout the lakes region of, of Africa, it would alleviate childhood blindness and what eventually turns into death because of vitamin A deficiency. By adding the gene that is in carrots to give that orange color to bananas, you know, Matoki is like, uh, it's more of a starchy banana. Um, it solves the problem of blindness, yet this, this is, and it exists already. It, it exists, but it's behind a barbed wire fence at the Kaganda uh, Research Park. In, so in, uh, would people eat an orange banana? Um, they would eventually. Uh, they already <laughs> did, and this is interesting. They um, they already did this with sweet potatoes. The 2016 World Food Prize went to a group who took the what the white fleshed African sweet potato and bred it against the Western sweet potato with the orange flesh. And over in Africa, many cultures throughout in the very you know Africa is a very complex tapestry, but many of the folks there especially the men wouldn't eat orange food. <laughs> huh. they, they said, you know, or sweet, you know, they don't yeah. want orange. They don't want sweet. And um, it's not what they're used to culturally yet. Uh, the, the ability to breed this in, it's not a GMO. This is traditional breeding of getting orange into the egg flesh, sweet potato. Um, they had to go with a communications campaign that targeted children. And kids had cartoons of the orange flesh sweet potato. And every morning they would uh, chant in school, the orange potato makes me smart. The orange potato makes me strong. The orange <laughs> and, and the beauty of this that, that made me cry when I heard it was after kids had access to that sweet potato, you could measure the vitamin A in their blood. It was a huge success. And now they're seeing changes in the patterns of childhood blindness being corrected. Um, this okay. was with traditional breeding, and we could have done it faster with genetic engineering 20 years ago. Wow. That's a pretty good example of using genetic engineering and education to, uh, you know, make the world just a little bit better place. Yeah. Good so, example. So with that being so positive, where do you think a lot of the stigma comes from around GMOs then? Is it just people who aren't educated? 
No, it's, it's, I don't know that it's uh, people who aren't educated because some of the most uh, vicious resistance comes from people who are quite educated. Unfortunately, they're misinformed or they, um, they don't appreciate the problems we can solve. The other problem is, is that a lot of people who are against the technology are not necessarily too worried about DNA and proteins and the things in the food. They're more opposed to large multinational companies uh, that have backgrounds in uh, chemistry that maybe were that um, are associated with things like Superfund sites and indiscriminate use, um, ecological disasters, because they are. Um, the, their backgrounds are not very good. And so now you have people who see these companies that had, you know, accidents with, you know, that were fatal in India and all, you know, all these companies now making seeds that are grown for food. And it just looks weird to them. And I understand those optics. The problem is, is that they are making their uneasiness with a company reflect in restricting the technology that farmers can have especially those in the developing world. And so how do we reach those folks and convince them that this is the right thing for us to do, to use technology to benefit farmers in, in the U.S. and Canada, as well as the smallholder farmers throughout Africa and Asia, South America? Um, that's where we really need to be. Yeah, so I have a quote here from you. It says that the New York – well, actually, I'll ask you this first. So you actually got into a pretty big lawsuit – um, with the New York Times and a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for defamation. you want to explain that a little bit? Oh, sure. That's, uh, it does pleasure. relate to this topic, right, from what I read? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I, uh, okay. Years ago. So um, in 2014, I got a funny email that said, um, we want all your emails. And I said, oh, all well, my emails. Okay, sure, whatever. And my university relinquished something like 5,000 pages of my emails to an organization called U.S. Right to Know. And I didn't really care. I called them up. I said, hey, what can I tell you? And they said, we just want your emails. Uh, they were curious why I was speaking about genetic engineering, why I was teaching about it, why I was guests on podcasts. And they thought that I was just being paid by the tentacles of industry to lie about science, right? That was their whole, uh, their whole argument. Uh, I had... Uh, Spoken with some, I, you know, when you're a plant biologist and you come up in, uh, in, through the universities, you have lots of friends who end up at the companies. And one guy who at the Monsanto company came to an event at the University of Florida and he said, you know, your students, they all are so good at presentation. It's amazing the job you guys do here. This is really great. W would you consider um, setting up some sort of a, a national program of this? where you could train students nationwide, and we might be willing to sponsor that. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. So they, they made a donation to a science communication program at my university, and no big deal. It was all on the table. It was all legit, nothing at all. I know it's a long story, but that's the setup. Well, this was reflected in my emails because it's all open records, nothing to hide. And the guys at U.S. Right to Know put a series of emails together and handed them to Eric Lipton at the New York Times. They, they handed him the story and said, here, go get them. And Lipton didn't want to do it at first. And this was all revealed through the lawsuit discovery process. And eventually he got talked into it 
by these activists. And his editors uh, didn't want to run the story. They thought it was too much of a hit piece. So they added somebody else to make it look like it was balanced. But in the end, they produced a front page of the Sunday New York Times paper that changed my life. It was a targeted hit piece that was set up to, to strictly make me look like an industry stooge. They said that I traded grants for lobbying time. I never received a grant. The donation went to the university. I never got a penny. Um, it cost me money to do this stuff personally because I got to pay for my own meals and my own time, and I'm away from my you know wife and home on the weekends. Um, and uh, and and I can't do lobbying <laughs> by law legally because I work for the state of Florida, I, and then we have federal funds. I can't lobby. So here I was described as, as someone who was essentially being dishonest about science for money, which is the worst thing you can ever say about a public scientist. And um, that's why we sued the New York Times. And, um, and it is something that changed my life. Um, the threats that came to me and my family, um, it was horrible. The fallout from it was disgusting. It, it was unbelievable and still to this day causes problems. When I go talk to people about COVID and we talk about, and I want to explain to them about the virus and how we get around it and how we solve the problem. Somebody who is not politically in line with that posts the New York times thing and says, look, you can't believe a word of this guy says. So this thing will follow me to the grave. Yeah. Well, um, so I have a quote that, here from, or sorry, go ahead. No, that's the story. Yeah, so uh, I have a quote here. I was reading an article about it, and quite frankly, the article definitely did not like you, the people writing it. Um, and it says that the New York, you said that the New York Times misrepresented you as a covertly paid operative of one of the largest and most controversial companies in America, Monsanto, to further their own anti-GMO agenda. So do you think that the anti-GMO agenda is like deeply rooted in these organizations, and that's a problem? Well, that, the, the problem is, is that they make their money and they make their living with that agenda. And they, they, they push pseudoscience. They push bogus science. You can go back through everything I've ever said and everything I've ever done on any of these websites or contributed to anything, whatever. And the information there is as true today as it was then. I told the truth about the science. I explained it in ways that people could understood, and that's why I had to be taken out. Yeah, well, not to get political, Mr. Waldron, but uh, as somebody who does, when I do read the New York Times, I occasionally shake my head. I'm, I definitely feel for you. So what do you think people should do to promote accurate information about GMOs and the science related to them? Is it through podcasts oh, like this, or what do you think the best way to do that is? Well, so the podcasts are certainly one kind of media that can be produced to do this. But the problem is, is you know, as we mentioned before, that the pushback against genetic engineering isn't necessarily a lack of information. You know, we've been informing people about this for a long time. And that was my, you know, modus operandi for, you know, a decade was, let me give you more information. You'll love this. And really what it was, I was swinging and missing. People don't understand the good things that we can do with technology. And so when, nowadays, when I talk to someone about genetic engineering, I don't talk about Roundup Ready corn and soybeans. I talk about um, Victoria Gray 
Victoria Gray is a mother of four who suffered with sickle cell disease her entire life, who because of genetic engineering has new bone marrow and is cured. She's the first person cured of this debilitating disease that affects primarily African-Americans or, or people of African descent, wherever they are. And that is how we change this equation. People don't get excited about crops and stuff like that, but they can relate to someone having technology help them uh, beat a debilitating disease. And that's how we started. Yeah. So you mentioned Joe Rogan earlier, and I think that's actually really cool because I'm a pretty big fan of his. But I know one thing that he says a lot, and it's not relating to this topic, but it's more relating to censorship. And this, in this case, it's more related to just uh, information about the good side of GMOs compared to the bad side that really the only way to combat bad speech is with more good speech. So I think that's a pretty good message you're putting out. Well, and it, and it takes more people to do it. So, you know, the podcast that you're doing, this is great that you put this kind of information out there. The problem is, is that the people who are against this have a couple things on their side. Their full-time job, 40 hours a week, is to target the technology and the people that teach it. Um, the, they have great command of search engine optimization. They have splashy websites. They have lots of money. <laughs> and, you know, here I am trying to get money to put out the donuts of the talk and being framed as a, as a secret agent of the, of the uh, <laughs> biotechnology industry. Um, I don't have the time to, uh, to, to build a flashy website. You know, I can barely do a podcast. So what it means is, is that we need to have more involvement from more people creating media in this space. Since uh, we don't have the time and resources individually, we have to do it collectively. And the more stuff we have, the more stuff we produce, that's great. And then the more we share each other's work through social media, that's how we beat this problem. Yeah. Another question I have is, I think, actually, I think I can draw the comparison between like the nuclear power issue and this is why do you think people cling to the bad stories related to GMOs and things like that compared to the good stories? Well, because it's easier to scare people than it is to educate them, right? Yeah. Fear is really important emotion. It comes from the, you know, the reptile brain. It's evolutionarily super important to us to find something that threatens us or our families and run the other way. But to convince people that a technology is good takes the executive function. You have to talk to the slow part of the brain in a way it wants to uh, be talked to. And that's where we missed as scientists. Now, we're too busy combating fear with facts, and it doesn't work. I've been telling you, Justin, I think everybody in the country needs to be required to take an introduction to ag class when they're freshmen like you guys have to do. Maybe oh, that would fix agree. Yeah, if not a whole ag course. Yeah. Well, that would be really great because I—I I mean, I—I'm uh, married to a farmer. We, uh, you know, we we sell at farmers markets on Saturdays, and the questions that I get from people are just insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, and it really exemplifies that here we are is part of your community, and they really don't know what happens in an agricultural setting. Well, I have a big poster hanging in the classroom that says we no longer need farmers because we can just go down to Safeway and buy our food. <laughs> and that is a public perception. Yeah. Well, and that's the, uh, that's the, the, the burden of abundance, right? That when everything comes too easy, all of a sudden people 
lose track of really where it comes from. And when I get chances to talk to kids, especially, I love talking about supply chains and how far that banana travels and how, how many people have to touch it to make it work and how long it has to hang on that tree in the, in the boats and the storage facilities and to get it to you for 65 cents a pound, <laughs> which, which is just blows me away that we can do that. It really is miraculous, but unfortunately people don't appreciate it because it just comes too easy. Yeah. And I think that's one of the greatest things that organizations like national FFA do is getting kids involved with other things, but then teaching them that and the values associated with it. I totally agree. I, I, I absolutely love FFA kids. The ones we have here in Florida are amazing. Um, I've gotten to work with uh, quite a few over the years and I'm always impressed by uh, what FFA does for training of the next generation of students in agriculture. It's very exciting. Yep. Well, Mr. Waldron, do you have anything else to add? No, I, I think I'm good. I, uh, once again, I appreciate you coming on and talking to us and I will, uh, know that I actually am one of the few people in Oregon that cheer for, uh, the Gators over all those other <laughs> SEC schools and ACC schools. So good for you guys. Yeah. Any closing? Up, oh, go for it. Beat up on Clemson and Alabama for us, will you? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll see what I can do about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think the um, you know the big take-home message is for more people to get excited about producing media around agriculture, even if it's just submitting articles or writing a blog. You know, do something. And if you don't want to produce media, you don't want to create content. Share the content of good content producers. And I, and I think, think that is. I think what Justin's doing is a very good example of that. You know, we have a small market here. It's kind of a school podcast, but it's starting to reach out. And I think all these small projects and communication projects like this will go a long way and make a difference. I think it's awesome. And I'm glad you're doing it, at, at, you know, now. And, you know, give me every link you can. And I will share this far and wide because that's how we, it's, it's all about how we amplify each other, right? It yeah. takes me two seconds to click click a link and share your product with other people. And if you get a few other shares out there, all of a sudden this thing starts to get some tentacles. It is really and, crazy how the power of one share, what that can do if another person that sees it shares it, and then it continues down a chain. But you see, the bad guys have that all figured out. And they are very adept at getting things shared and distributed through the tentacles of the interwebs. And we haven't gotten so good at that. We really need to be promoting the good work that other people are doing. So I, you know, thank you very, very much for doing this, and thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Before we end here, how many downloads did you say you had on your podcast? It's uh, going on 1.4 million. Wow! Congratulations. That's actually really amazing. Yeah, I, I can't believe it because it, it's very strange to talk to a microphone. And uh, you don't really imagine anyone really listening to it out there. But when you get the comments and you see the shares and uh, the weekend you can't get to it and don't do it and people send you emails that are angry because they walk the dog and listen <laughs> to the podcast, if where is it? Um, it really shows that you are making an impact. And I'm just an idiot in an office with a microphone. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. So just create content. Someone out there will love to see it. Yeah. Well, with that, thank you, Dr. Kevin Folta, for coming on the podcast. We would love to have you back. And you have been listening to the Cowboy Talk podcast that can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. 
share this podcast. We just talked about it with any possible person that you can, any way you can, so that we can get more listeners. And go ahead and give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find it organically. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.